VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. We hope to see him again real soon on this mozzy, miserable old Monday day. My goodness gracious. Uh, hard to get up and motivated, but we're going to do our best here this morning. Get you uh, riled up and uh, on the lines. Well, um, it was a heartbreaking last couple of days. Uh, anybody who is in the hockey community in Newfoundland and Labrador and the hockey community is a very connected community, a very caring community here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Schools across the province today asking students to wear their team jerseys or their favorite jerseys in honor of little Lincoln Walsh of Chapels Cove who died last week. Just a terrible tragic circumstance uh, such a gorgeous little boy uh, so popular so well known and uh, and an avid little hockey player well tributes were held right across the province and across the country I noticed a few hockey sticks out by people's doors and and like I say now uh, kids in the school system wearing their jerseys uh, to honor him uh, teams like the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, paid tribute uh, the Newfoundland Growlers held a very moving moment of silence in his memory on Saturday evening I happened to be at the game and uh, you could hear a pin drop um, just uh, just a terrible terrible tragedy the hockey community uh, as I said very close here in Newfoundland and Labrador and right across the country our very deepest condolences uh, to his grieving family and of course to the local school community and the hockey communities at large West rest easy Lincoln well, the uh, Innu Nation pulled out of the Premier's Indigenous Roundtable over their concerns about the Nunatuavut Community Council. And these are concerns that have been raised by the Innu Nation for some time now. I remember they held a news conference about this uh, a number of years ago now. It has to be well before COVID struck. That's always our marker, isn't it? Um, and Nunatsiavut government also raising concerns about, um, I suppose, the uh, Nunatuavut Community Council flexing its indigenous muscles, so to speak. Uh, my words, not anybody else's, um, for want of a better term. Um, they oppose NCC being recognized as an indigenous group and uh, gaining access to programs intended for uh, indigenous peoples. Um, they have, uh, they're not contesting that uh, Nunatuavut does have some indigenous uh, background. They're not um, uh, arguing that they live in a relatively rural and isolated part of uh, Canada. Uh, none of those things they're arguing, and they say that, you know, there are programs for that, but what they are concerned about are these incursions into um, land claims, which uh, the Innu Nation has been very blunt in, in um, outlining. Uh, and access to programs for, let's say, Indigenous youth going through school or to get them to finish school and uh, on to uh, post-secondary, those kinds of things. So just some of the examples anyway. But it's uh, interesting that all of this is occurring uh, during this uh, very heightened awareness about truth and reconciliation. Is it having any kind of an impact on truth and reconciliation? And it's, it's something that, because uh, we've asked repeatedly, 
uh, for government to address or to uh, they simply say we're committed to dealing, you know, uh, fairly with all indigenous groups in Newfoundland and Labrador. But um, it's something that I don't think the provincial government can continue to ignore. Um, there is a division here, and uh, we have to see a way through it as a province, I would think, if uh, truth and reconciliation is to um, be successful. And I guess, you know, like all things, truth and reconciliation is not an easy path. It's not an easy thing. And uh, indigeneity, is, is that a word? Uh, indigenousness um, is complicated. It's not always uh, cut and dried. Uh, so if anybody has any thoughts on that, they're certainly welcome to give us a call. Well, the Premier will deliver his State of the Province address to the St. John's Board of Trade tomorrow. Quite a few difficulties facing Newfoundlanders and Labradorians uh, these days, as we all know, including housing and the rising cost of living. You heard Tim Powers on this morning talking about the divisions created by this carbon tax and the clean fuel tax. And uh, this government, the um, uh, provincial government here in Newfoundland and Labrador, has been very clear. They're trying to separate themselves from that federal policy and explain how difficult that makes it for Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, VOCM's question of the day on Saturday, what do you think is the number one issue facing Newfoundlanders and Labradorians right now? And uh, far and above all else, the rising cost of living, 69% um, say that that has to be addressed. And everybody is feeling the crunch, aren't they? Uh, not to mention, of course, the carbon tax, uh, the federal clean energy regulations, and um, what the Employers' Council says is the rising cost of doing business, including things like insurance tax. That was eliminated, as you know, um, for a year on residential properties, but not on business properties. Um, and also, we're looking at uh, the possibility of a fall fiscal update coming up in the next couple of weeks. We're not sure exactly when yet. And um, the uh, finance minister already indicating that there may not be a reprise of the $500 checks that were issued last year, those cost of living checks or whatever you want to call them. Anyway, if you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Um, and we have this uh, situation involving um, this uh, f local food box promotion that didn't quite live up to its billing. Five Brothers Artisan Cheese promised a once a week delivery of fresh food from a number of local producers. Apparently that hasn't happened really. It was supposed to have started on August 11th. Some people got um, one uh, delivery. Others say they didn't get any delivery. They're looking for a refund. They have yet to receive that. If anybody has any thoughts on that, they're welcome to give us a call. We did reach, VOCM News did reach out to Adam Blanford, uh, Blanchard of Five Brothers Artisan Cheese, and uh, he told us that um, he's going through a process. A process is underway, but he declined further comment on that. If you have any thoughts on that, you're welcome to give us a call. So much more on the go, including uh, what's happening globally. So if you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Well, we're going to start the show this morning with Lindsay. You're on the air. Hello, Lindsay. Yes, good morning. How are you this morning? Not too bad. It's kind of a dull morning, though, just the same. It is. Yeah, dull all over, according to what you were just saying just now. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Anyway, I'd like to talk about the uh, banking system. Like some of the branches are closing down. Yeah. Out, out around there, they're closing down. And uh, like in places like out here where there's only just the one bank, 
I think we got another one. We got a credit union bank or something like that out there. Where but is it, out you know, here? It's going to be pretty hard on the people because everything is going to be filtered into Gander now. There's here and Lawsport and a few other places around the cut banks then, and uh, everything's going to filter into, into Gander. So where now, is here? Where are you calling from? I call them from New World Island. That's oh, where, okay, yes, up that's to the Gateway. Twenty-eight, and our bank has seen Twenty-eight, and all the communities around there on New World Island and Twenty-eight Island and and places, they all go into filter into uh, go to Twenty-eight to do their banking and stuff like that, eh? Now that's going to be pretty hard on on the people because now everything is going to be filtered into Gander. So which one and is closing? What are you talking about now? Hey? Which which branch is closing? Uh, well, okay, it is uh, the Bank of Nova Scotia. In Twillingate? Yes, sir. The branch area in Twillingate is going to close next August. Wow, that's going to have a significant impact. What are they, yeah. what are they going to leave there instead, a, a, I, a banking machine? I don't machine? know. Like we got a credit union there because I found out that Friday when I went to bank to the bank at the end of the week. I always go at the bank to you know, pay my bills and do my banking and stuff like that. But that's what they told me. Next August, there's going to be, in the Atlantic region, I think there's going to be 42 banks closed down. Wow. Branches. And across Canada, there's going to be over 200 branches closed down. Yeah, it, uh, it, it seems to be the way of the world these days. Uh, they expect a lot of people to um, bank online, and that's uh, all well and good, except uh, I know for certain that in Twillingate, there are times when you cannot get uh, access to Wi-Fi. No, I, I know, that, and that's one of the old, old problems, you know. But not only that, but a lot of people go to banks like myself that pay my phone bill, my hydro bill, and stuff like that. I pay it in person at the bank. But now, uh, you know, like, that's all going to change next August. I don't know what people are going to do, you know, like, and it's not the same thing. People have got mortgages, you know. Let's, let's suppose you got a $200,000 mortgage on a house around there and and that's not common anymore you know that's not uncommon that's to use the amount of mortgage and now you got to go to another bank and you got to change your mortgage over to the credit union or something that's like when you change your credit card from one bank to another bank there's a penalty fee so there will be a penalty fee so if you got a two hundred thousand dollar mortgage your penalty fee could be about another extra five or six thousand dollars depending upon how much your mortgage is and so what percentage they charge you do your banking in person are you open yes, I to do are you open to um switching to online banking for instance well no because my old computer here doesn't doesn't work with us it's right down the mountains you know right right down the valleys and stuff like that and i have difficulty in getting it to work i hear you you know, so uh, to me, it's going to be, and a good many more like me, it's going to be awful confusing to get this stuff done. And everything's going to be filtering to Gander. Now, Gander's about an hour and a half drive away. If you got to go to Gander every Friday. Especially in the winter months. Especially in the winter months and the amount of gas you're going to burn. Exactly like Lawsport Bank is also going to close down. The Bank of Nova Scotia in Lawsport is going to close down. They're going to have to go to Gander and all the places around, you know, like along the Trans-Canada Highway, say like Gander or uh, Glenwood and Appleton and Gambo and these places, probably they're all going to Lawsport or uh, Gander. 
Well, I'd like to hear from the uh, mayor of Twillingate to see what he has to say about that um, and what kind of an impact what, it's going to have. Yeah, I don't know if he's going to if he know yet or not, but that's what they told me anyhow, and I think it's true because uh, I happened to be uh, listening to uh, BNN Bloomberg one day. I just happened to be flipping through the channels, and they said that the Bank of Nova Scotia was going to have a layoff, a lot of layoffs across Canada. So I guess that's what they mean. Like branches are closing down. Like All right. Be, not only that, but you take people like that does their uh, shopping. Like you buy your groceries. Those days everybody's using their debit card. Now the debit card either goes into the Bank of Nova Scotia or the Credit Union there in 28. Now they got to bring in technicians next year to change all that around so it can go to the Bank of Canada or the, the Bank of Nova Scotia in uh, in in uh, Gander, and and that's not going to be very cheap. Well, Lindsay, let's see what others have to say because that's going to uh, affect a, a, a large a number of people, not just yeah. in your area, but by the sounds of it, in in lots of areas. I know that yeah, many banks are closing their there. branches. Yeah, from there to Lawsport and there to Gander, you know. It's, it's going to be like if you go into Gander, you might be outside in a, in a lineup in the wintertime. Yeah. Because I've been in the Bank of Nova Scotia in uh, Gander, and they only got one or two tellers in, in there. So I don't know what, what's going to go on or how, how confusing this is going to be. And uh, and where the federal government lie within this stuff, you know? Do you mean to tell me like like the minister of finance, what's her name, Christian Freeman, and the prime minister, and the governor of the Bank of Canada? All these people doesn't know about this stuff. They certainly know, but they won't tell the people. All right, Lindsay, we'll leave it there. I, I really appreciate your call. We'll see what others have to say. Thank you. Yeah, but, uh, you know, like I'll be back on there again talking about this again yet before next August or when it comes into effect. Yeah. Because it's going to be awful confusing. I go, no, I know that much, and people are going to be upset about it because they're not going to know which is which anymore, you know? Yeah, I got you, Lindsay. Thank you very much. Okay, then. All righty. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Is that affecting you in your community? Give us a call. We're ho we hope to hear from the mayor of uh, Twillingate to see what he has to say about that in the next little while. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll speak with Gerard, and we hope to hear from you. And we're back, Linda Swain, in for Patty Daly, who is off today. Well, uh, Premier Fury is going to be making an announcement today about the province's approach uh, towards ride-sharing. Of course, there's been a growing call for ride-sharing services here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And according to many who we have spoken to, the legislation does just doesn't uh, allow for that right now. The, the language is antiquated and all the, all the rest of it. So it will require some legislative amendments and some legislative changes. Well, the uh, province is going to announce its um, approach towards ride sharing today. There's a news conference that is scheduled for the Alt Hotel at 11 this morning. VOCM News will be there. Sarah Studley, John Haggy, and uh, Anne-Marie Boudreau of the uh, uh, St. John's Board of Trade and Kathy Duke of Destinations St. John's also on hand. So we'll keep you up to date on that and see what transpires from all of that. We're going to go now to Gerard. You're on the air. Hello, Gerard. Hi, my name is Gerard. Um, I'm just, uh, I don't know where I'll start with this. Uh, I operate a business in Portugal Cove. 
uh, named Winnie Heights Farm. The biggest thing I'm telling everybody, don't start a business here in Newfoundland because you can't get any supplies. Uh, I'm mean? having a real I'm having a real supply chain. I'm trying to produce food. I grow mushrooms, and I'm pretty well out of out of the business right now. I'm shut down. Why? What's going on? When I started a year ago, when the process started building up, uh, expanded our mushroom operation, we needed more power at the barn. It took ten months to get a disconnect switch here in Newfoundland. And now a I got disconnect, disconnect switch. So just back us up for a moment. What would you need okay. that for? Uh, for when you turn the power off, turn into the billing. I got 600 amps turned into the billing, and I need a disconnect. And it took ten and a half months to get that disconnect. And now? And I finally got it after I started looking for it myself, and I found one the next day in Toronto. Like, supply chain here in Newfoundland is gone. If they're talking about the food industries as a supply chain, it's the stuff that you need to help build the food, that supply chain is gone. So right you now, weren't able to have any production because of this weight? Nothing. And I'm at the point now, I got the disconnect put in in September, and I found out from Newfoundland Power, I need a CT switch, and that's back orders. So I'm two months waiting for a CT switch from Newfoundland Power, which they say they got it in on Friday, and now they've gone down to the warehouse to check, see if they can uh, have enough of them to supply the demand that's needed here in Newfoundland. They said there's a whole bunch of people waiting for these CT switches. And it might be another two months before I get my hands on like, it, something's wrong with the system here in Newfoundland. we got a whole mess of issues that's underlying everything here in Newfoundland, and no one's talking about it. And I, I've, I'm at the point now, my nerves are shot, trying to get a business going, and I thought I could ha- at least be able to move ahead in the business that um, I really enjoy. But you can't do nothing here in Newfoundland. Every time you turn around, just something else going to knock you down. Right. So when did you when did you get started on this whole idea of a mushroom farm? When I bought the farm five years ago, I needed something to be able to keep the bills to get through the winter, and we 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 built a small operation where we're doing two three hundred pounds a week, and at the point now we're pretty well the power is not enough. We're I'm having extension cords run across the floor to keep this operation running, and it's. I, I got somebody else moved in here on the farm that's doing uh, apple cider, and they're, they need power also. Upgrade last year. And I got an upgrade, and I got a grant from the government to help him build this operation. And the government's in, have part of me involved too, because if, if I go under, they're losing a whole bunch of money. So I'm nervous. I'm just frustrated with the whole system. And I can't talk to anybody at Newfoundland Power. I talked to a supervisor that looks after the phones, but that's as far as I can get. And does it have to come through Newfoundland Power? How how would that work? Yeah, I try to say, can I get it myself? No, Newfoundland Power has to supply it, and they got one supplier, which is back orders. I said, you can't operate a business or do a like if if you got a project manager at Newfoundland Power doing these jobs. You should have the CT switches. If one supplier can't have it, you should be able to find another supplier to bring this stuff in. I dealt with the fishing industry for 20 years, and a ship wanted something, I find it. If I had to go to Germany, I'll find it. 
And now here in Newfoundland, you're, you're tied. You're, your fingers are tied. You can't do nothing. You have to do it. But I also found out that CT switch is not installed by Newfoundland Power. It's installed by my electrician. Right? So why can't the electrician go and find a CT switch to put on this system and get me working? They're, they're upgrading to a new system that they will not put me on power through the old way with the analog system. And have you tried through a, a private um, electrician? Yeah, he can't touch it. He's not allowed uh, to do it. No, not allowed to do it. They have to come from Newfoundland Power. It, like, I, I'm at the point, I said, telling everybody, said, don't start a business here in Newfoundland. Between municipal council and all other supply chains trying to get something done, forget it. Like, last last year, I got the project off the ground. I got the government grants money from the government, and I got uh, some money I put in myself, and it took me six months to get a, a work order through the local community to get my project started. And what order. kind of volume would you need to produce in order to be viable? I am shooting for 1,000 pounds a week of mushrooms. And you're doing a couple hundred, you say? Yeah, I'm right now right now I'm doing nothing because I'm, I'm dead in the water. Wow. Uh, and are you able to diversify into anything else? It's, it's at the point now. It's a little bit late. Yeah, you're you're you were focused on this, and yeah, uh, now you're when, just waiting. If you're trying to do something else, it's going to take months and months to get that stuff rolling. I I I don't know what to tell you, but I just wanted to put it on the open line that if anybody's waiting for a CT switch, get on your case, get on Newfoundland Power's case, or phone your or phone your MP and. Just don't wait for somebody else to make a decision for you, because they're they're making decisions for you to fail. And what's um what's the holdup then with these particular switches? I have no idea. No idea. It's a, it's a supply problem. There got to be other suppliers out there. You can go online, uh, Google, and find the CT switches. I'm not sure if they're the right ones that you need uh, right. need for here, right? Yeah. Well. Gerard Walsh, it's it's a, uh, obviously a very uh, serious issue that's affecting you in a very profound way. What will this mean? I mean, obviously your season. Can you produce um, mushrooms year round? I can, and that's what I was shooting for. Yeah, you're hoping so to salvage us. I've got a whole mess of restaurants still interested, and if I can produce it, they'll they'll buy it for me. And I have local people want to buy mushrooms, and the mushrooms are a health benefit. Right. So I, I don't know. And what kind of mushrooms do you produce? I got 18 varieties. Wow. Wow. Gourmet gourmet mushrooms. And I can't even produce one right now. Yeah. And so you have restaurants waiting on your product and you've got no product to give them. Yeah. And now it's coming into winter. Yeah. I have one coal snap in this building and all my water is all frozen. Wow. I, I got no no heat. I got a, a wood stove here, and I'm trying to keep that going. It gets keep heat in the building. Yeah, but that's a different type of heat, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Does that affect the mushrooms then? Uh, not enough. That kind of dry heat? Yeah, I need a moisture. You need moist, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, you're in quite the pickle. Um, Gerard, we'll see. How many other people are in the same pickle as I am that haven't said anything? Yeah, no, for sure. I wonder the same. Uh, We'll see if this uh, strikes a chord with anybody out there. I hope they walk on electric cord to find out. <laughs> yeah, an electric cord, yeah. Um, Gerard Walsh, uh, Windy Heights Farm, I really appreciate your time this morning. We'll see uh, if we hear from anyone else, and um, hopefully you get some action soon. Will you keep us up to date? I will. I'm not letting this go. I've been I've been throwing Newfoundland Power every week since I found out in September. And yeah. I said I'll be, after the CT switch comes in and I don't get it, I'll be throwing you every day after that. This is your livelihood. I, I appreciate it, Gerard. Thank you. This is, is my livelihood. you got to fight for what you believe in. Yeah. And you got to fight for your own business because you rely on somebody else to operate your business. You ain't getting nothing done. Have you got anybody to advocate on your behalf? Like, um, I don't know, the CFIB or uh, the Employers Council or, uh, you know, your local I've, chamber of commerce? I've, I've gone to uh, the... Uh, Minister of Agriculture and his deputy ministers jumped in and going to send a letter to uh, Newfoundland Power and they're going to call them today. So maybe a little bit of noise, get something done. And the Federation of Agriculture? Uh, no, I haven't called them yet. Yeah, you should give that a try as well because they might help yeah, I, advocate on I your behalf. This in, in July when I found out this CT switch, uh, that disconnect was gone. And I was okay till then because I was still producing mushrooms. But after that, uh, it's it's all downhill from here, right? So. Oh my, Gerard! I hope right. you get some satisfaction soon. I really appreciate your call this morning. All right, thank you. Okay. Yeah. Bye bye. Bye. Uh, Gerard Welsh there, Windy Heights Farm in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. Uh, what a pickle he's in. Uh, anybody else? Did that strike a chord with you? I'd like to hear from you this morning. In the meantime, uh, what normally happens is we'll have this big spurt of calls at the beginning of the show and then it peters out, but we have openings right now, so now is your chance to give us a call. Do so. Whatever's on your mind, give us a call. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions. Plus, interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays. Your VOCM mornings. And we're back. The lines are open. Now is your opportunity to give us a call. Had a chance to take in uh, one of the Growlers games. They uh, swept Reading on the weekend. Nice to see. Really fast play. Really uh, fun to watch, I got to say. I don't know what's uh, happening on the ice, but uh, I guess a lot of young legs there. Uh, And uh, Brock Caulfield, very fun to watch him play. My goodness, he looks just like uh, Cole. Uh, Anyway, a really fun game to watch, I have to say. I was with Alison King. We weren't together, but we were sitting next to each other. So that was a, a fun little thing to do as well. Uh, she is uh, uh, staffing our website for us in uh, VOCM. So, um, yeah, uh, she's a big hockey fan and a player herself. So that, very fun to uh, watch that. If you have any thoughts on the Growlers, not a half bad crowd there. I know I've attended games in the past where it's been, you know, a, sort of a half-hearted uh, number of people there. Not a bad crowd there at all. And uh, like I say, the, the game was very fast and a little bit chippy at times. So, uh, yeah, very interesting to watch. If you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. And like I say, that um, moment of silence for a little Lincoln Walsh was, uh, was really... Um, moving, uh, I have to say. Uh, 
you couldn't hear a pin drop. Um, I see over $87,000 has been raised through a, um, a GoFundMe um, fundraiser for his family um, that's uh, surpassed the initial $15,000 goal um, and um, just some overwhelming support there. As I said, the local hockey community very much uh, in support of, um, you know, some of their own. So our, uh, again, our deepest uh, condolences and support to uh, his family. Very, very difficult indeed. Um, lots more on the go. Uh, let's see now. We have somebody on the line. Is that for me, David? Oh, we have oil and gas advocate uh, Rob Strong waiting for us on the line. Hello, Rob. Good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? I'm fine, thanks, and you? Good, good. So listen, just, what's... I'm, I'm just back from sunny, warm Guyana. Oh, wow. Uh, after a week with a group of Newfoundland business people, so I'm having problems adjusting to, you to know, this. the average temperature last week was twenty between 29 and 31. So, wow, uh, and humid, I would imagine. Yes, very humid, but yeah. very productive, always very productive down there, lots of opportunities for sure. Yeah, so uh, yeah, there was a little delegation there. Yeah, there were about 15 of us, I guess, in a mixed, a mixed bunch, some IT people, some oil and gas people, some other resource industry people. So uh, very worthwhile and still an exciting opportunity down there for Newfoundland companies, no question. So what are you learning about uh, oil and gas in Guyana compared to here? Well, it's very fast moved, obviously. You know, they discovered oil in 2015 and we're producing by 2020. Right now they have two FPSOs, each producing about 200,000 barrels a day. The third one is waiting to be hooked up. The fourth and fifth one have been ordered. So uh, from 2015 to 2027, they will have at least five, if not six, FPSOs producing close to a million barrels of oil a day. So uh, lots to learn from them as far as fast-tracking developments go, for sure. And what about the quality of the product there? So light, sweet, crude, big demand, everybody wants it. Exxon's the, Exxon's the operator and has two partners, or at least had two partners up to the day. Interesting, there's breaking story out of Guyana today. Uh, Exxon has been the, the operating partner and has had two partners, and it was a company called Hess, which is a fairly large independent U.S. company, and Sinoc, the Chinese. But I was just reading this morning that uh, Hess has been sold to Chevron, so... Uh, two to three players down there, or two to three. Well, matter of fact, the Chinese also have acreage offshore in Newfoundland. So some of the same players offshore in Newfoundland are also the players in Guyana. So what's happening, I mean, globally when it comes to oil and gas production? I mean, we all know what the situation is. Uh, uh, there are concerted efforts to move away from non-renewables, uh, but yet the demand remains. Uh, so globally, what's happening with oil and gas? Well, the demand is still very strong for the time being. How long it's going to last is, is a matter of conjecture. It depends on, you know, like many things, it depends on who you believe. Some say we're, you know, we're going to need oil for another 30, 40 years. Some say another 20 years. And some say 10 years. A lot of countries are switching from fossil fuels to alternate sources of energy. And, of course, as we know, there's a transition to electric cars. 
uh, reading an article the other day in Nor about it, about the automobile industry in Norway, and I think, as I recall correctly, by the end of next year, you're not going to be able to buy a car in Norway that has a conventional engine. So all countries are uh, are certainly conscious and and, and and cognizant of the implications of continuing to use fossil fuel, but. We can't switch today. We can't switch tomorrow. It's going to take a period of time for the world to change. And when we look at at what's known as the BRIC, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, they're still fast-growing economies and still demand lots of fossil fuels. So uh, I wouldn't uh, pack my bags yet and give up on oil and gas, but I would think in the long, long term, which 30, 40 years, that uh, – we're going to see a transition away from it. Is demand in part being fueled by some of these hostilities we're seeing around the world? Not, uh, you know, Ukraine, Russia, Israel, uh, Gaza, these kinds of things. I don't think it's 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 being well. The 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 dynamics of where the oil is going and who's producing are changing. I don't think the actual demand itself is changing or still. The Western, particularly the Western Europe and the North American continent, and to some extent the ferries still still demand oil and gas, and but it just depends where that the, the transition is where it's coming from. I mean, Russia used to be a big exporter of crude, and now there's lots of sanctions against. And in particular, Western Europe was a big consumer of gas from Russia, and with the shutdown of the two major pipelines, the the, the the transportation, the transporting of gas has changed drastically in Western Europe. Uh, our friends in Norway, for instance, are stepping up, and they can't uh, they can't produce enough gas to fill the market in Western Europe. And of course, we're also aware of the impact of hydrogen slash ammonia as a potential source of energy. Germany, as everybody knows, is big demand for uh, fossil for uh, hydrogen ammonia to replace fossil fuels and 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 coal as well but certainly oil is uh, oil is not available or not acceptable anymore in some of these countries so uh, they're looking at alternate sources of energy and if you're running a steel mill in Germany you need power you need energy and so thus the great interest in in the uh, wind industry in Newfoundland so things are changing but certainly the demand hasn't decreased quite yet what kind of conversations are being had in the local oil and gas industry surrounding these clean fuel regulations? Because we're hearing a lot of political talk about it, but I'm not hearing much from uh, industry players. What kind of an impact is it going to have? Oh, I, I, I think I have to disagree with you there, Linda. I think Energy NL in particular has got a uh, an ongoing discussion and, and lots of activity. Uh, just before I went away, I went to a, a, a seminar where four of the proponents for the hydrogen ammonia projects spoke, and there were over 300 people there. So it was it was a great deal of interest on behalf of the Newfoundland business community to start looking to these other forces of energy. So, uh, yeah, everybody's talking about it for sure. Now, what are we hearing about the, the sea rose? I'm hearing that it's dry docking. What's going on there? Well, the story broke over the weekend. I, I don't know how long it's uh, how long it's been going on. Well, I know how long it's gone, been going on. Some time ago, last oh, I guess last spring, Sonovas, who was the operator of the uh, White Rose Field, went out to bid 
for a shipyard to undertake a dry docking and refitting and overhauling and so on. And they went to three companies. They went to Farrow, I think is the name. That's the Spanish. That's the uh, that's the Spanish company that did the Terranova FPSO, and I I use that word did quite <laughs> whatever. As we all know, they had all sorts of problems. The second was a yard in Rotterdam owned by Damon, and the third was Harlan and Wolf in in Belfast. So they in Harlan and Wolf. And I guess with with, with the acquiescence of of Sonovas announced last week that the Sea Rose would be going to to their shipyard in Belfast uh, for approximately three months, commencing in this first quarter of 2024. And they've also confirmed that we'll be over there for roughly three months. So it's going off location for three months and going to get a... I guess a well-deserved upgrade. And, you know, they have to take it out of the water. They have to uh, scrape the hull, paint the hull, do the thrusters, do the turret, do lots of tops. And it's valued at about seven. Well, according to their press release, it's valued at about seventy-five million dollars. So uh, it's it's a nice piece of work for a shipyard. It's unfortunate we don't have a yard here to be able to accommodate to take it out of the water. We certainly have the ability to do the topside work. I just wonder how hard Sonovus looked at the possibility of, of taking it to a yard in Europe, taking it out of the water, scraping the hull, do all you have to do on the hull, and then bringing it back to Newfoundland to do the topside work. So, uh, I mean, I think is it's that economical can... though for the company as a whole? Well, or? That's a good question. I, I I really don't know. Is and and from a technical perspective, rather sort of shared resources and so on. But certainly, I'd be nice. It'd be nice to think that you know we had quote unquote full and fair opportunity. Whether it would work, the question you raise is a very very valid one. You'll have to talk to somebody who knows more about it than I do on that one. Well, I doubt there's there, very many people who do. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. oh, knows no, more than I mean, you i mean <laughs> you you flatter me but no i'm i'm only a, i'm only a babe in the woods in this business but it's interesting because harold and wolf are forecasting about a thousand people working on it so wow. yeah major and that that raises the other question of course do we would we have the would we have the person power the the tradespeople to uh, to do the work, you know. If if indeed there's a thousand, uh, can we find a thousand tradespeople that that would come for three or four months and, and do the work? That, yeah, that, of course, that, we that, don't have any facilities even close to what they have in Belfast. Well, we, we certainly don't have a shipyard. We don't have a dry dock, but we we certainly Bull Arm has had, could on the topside work could certainly be done. I mean. Look at the follow-up work that we've done on the Terranova FPSO after it came back from its dry docking at Bull Arm. So, uh, yeah, we, we've got a world-class facility at Bull Arm for, for topside work, for module work, for piping and valves and that sort of thing. But, of course, we, we you know, the, the, the FPSO is probably 250 meters in length, so we have no ability to put it this way, Linda. Uh, the dockyard at uh, St. John certainly couldn't accommodate it. Well, Rob, we'll have to leave it there. We're up to a break, but I really appreciate your input this morning. Thanks very much. My pleasure anytime. Thanks, Linda. All right, and try and get readjusted to Newfoundland weather. 
Okay. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's uh, Rob Strong there, just back from uh, a little junket to Guyana with a uh, Newfoundland delegation representing the oil and gas industry here. When we come back after the break, we're going to speak with the mayor of Bonavista, John Norman. He's going to weigh in on these bank closures that were mentioned right off the top of the show by Lindsay. This is uh, VOCM Open Line. Here are the numbers. And we are back. We are going out to beautiful Bonavista now to speak with Mayor John Norman. Hello. Hello. You're not in beautiful Bonavista yet this morning. Oh, I no? I into St. John's 2 a.m. Uh, this morning, so I'm still in the city. Dreary old St. John's. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> in the rain. I understand you wanted to weigh in on this whole Bank of Nova Scotia thing. Uh, indeed, I did. Um, on behalf of the town of Bonavista, I received correspondence on uh, late Friday afternoon, which seems quite appropriate uh, when I couldn't get anyone on the phone, nor could anyone from our town hall, um, basically highlighting that the uh, Scotiabank branch in Bonavista with 10 or 12 employees in operation for over 100 years Uh, would be closing uh, in 2024. I was shocked. I am chair of the Regional Chamber of Commerce for the Bonavista Trinity area, one of the largest uh, business organizations in the province outside the Board of Trade here in the city uh, with over 142 not-for-profit and corporate business members. We have a significant business startup rate in the area, And this is the only listed bank in the Bonavista catchment area. You have close to 8,000 people in a small radius of Bonavista, and this is the bank. I myself go to that branch for years now, week over week, month over month. My CFO with one of my companies, financial admin staff at the town hall, very hard to show up at that bank branch at any given time, Monday through Friday, and not be in the porch, out to the porch, with a lineup. And the correspondence from Scotiabank says that they are streamlining their activities to improve service for their customers. As you can tell, I'm both shocked and enraged by this, the fragrant disregard for the people of the Bonavista area who have given Scotiabank through a monopoly, basically, their business for over 100 years. And the hundreds and hundreds of people, senior citizens, lower-income individuals, members of the business community that must do in-person banking. I must deal with a person at least two times a month. The nearest Scotiabank now, they say, will be conveniently located an hour and a half drive away in Clarenville. Uh, The whole thing is completely ludicrous, and I look forward to speaking to other mayors as more and more towns get notice of this and uh, speak with them at the M&L conference uh, starting this Thursday, this week actually, to discuss some sort of action plan, recruitment of new banks. Bonavista has been courted for a number of years now by other financial institutions saying, very, very busy location. Let us know if you're ever looking for another bank to do business with. So there's obviously something they know that Scotiabank doesn't. 
Uh, it is shocking when uh, Lindsay called off the top of the show and said that Twillingate is losing its Scotiabank, uh, uh, similar to the situation in Bonavista. I don't think I've ever been in Twillingate and haven't seen the lineup out to the uh, out through the lobby. No, there's there's really an an academic uh, issue that that is being researched actively in this as well. You have rural areas and sub-rural areas that many of them are quite populated communities and in populated areas, many with growing business communities in recent years. But you also have some of the older population of the province living in these areas. I don't think the 88-year-old woman I heard from this morning is popping on her smartphone to use a Scotiabank app this morning nor are hundreds like her going to be using an app or doing online banking with their iPad. She doesn't own an iPad. This is a really serious issue. This is insulting for the people who live in these rural areas, which in the grand scheme of things are are not really the most rural towns in the province by far. These are all towns with thousands of citizens and serve thousands more in their catchment areas. Scotiabank is telling us that where they obviously don't want our business. So um, the message is loud and clear. We will have our meeting with Scotiabank as a council, but uh, there will be other actions taken, and we will go about talking to other financial institutions that do want to work with us and support our community and the growth in our region. And this will go right to Goody Hutchings, the Minister for Rural at the uh, federal level, because this certainly affects rural economic development when nobody in rural Canada at this rate will have a bank to go to. Well, you're not going to get a business loan over an app, or at least I hope you're not. Uh, you're not going to get a mortgage over uh, over a, a, an app. Uh, you need to have that one-on-one. It will, will it affect economic development in your area? I mean, you've worked very hard to uh, to get Bonavista to where it is today. Absolutely. Well, as I said, I've just finished a speaking tour. We're a subject of academic study. I've just uh, traveled from um, the west coast of Newfoundland across Nova Scotia through New Brunswick and into Maine. I have spoken at top universities in Canada, the U.S. and Europe on the best practices of economic development in Bonavista, going from 15 or 20 years ago with very little business startup to now dozens of new businesses starting up in the Bonavista area every year, year over year. Business has grown, and the lineup at our local bank has certainly grown as well. I would love to see stats supporting all of this. To me, it sounds like a cash grab. They feel they have our business. We will willingly switch online with no personal contact, and those that must do in-person banking will simply make the drive. Well, I don't know about anybody else, but town staff in the town of Bonavista as well as my own CFO in, in some of my other private companies, will not be driving three hours a day to do corporate deposits or to do general business banking. That's not happening. So we'll happily be giving our business to somebody else. I'd like to hear what uh, other municipalities have to say about it, what Seniors NL has to say about it. Uh, and I'd also like to hear on. from some financial yeah. experts who uh, just like what's behind these kinds of moves. Exactly. Well, we need more details. I'm still taken off guard by the communication thus far from Scotiabank. 
but there are small bank branches from other banking companies that are all around this province that I reference to members of council. We have a Royal Bank operating three days a week in the small community, the hamlet of Trinity, uh, 30 minutes away from Bonavista, and has been operating there for a century. I have yet to hear anything about their closure. So how can they justify bank branches in communities like that with other banking corporations, with populations that are much, much smaller in those areas, and then shut down bank branches that have, as I said, 10 or 12 employees, and going from that to zero? I don't know how to meld those two in my mind, that all of a sudden we don't need those 10 in-person individuals and offices held in Bonavista. What we actually need to best service you is zero people. Or get your carcass down to Clarenville. (laughs) Yeah, spend time on money, gas, and money itself for those that are in business. This will have a significant deleterious impact on economic development in rural Newfoundland. And I'm assuming as news breaks throughout Atlantic Canada, I'm sure we're not the only province affected in rural areas by this announcement that's rolling out. No, indeed. I want to hear from others. We know about Twillingate now. We know about Bonavista. You know there's others. I'd like to hear from them this morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you, John. Keep us up to date, will you? Certainly will. Alrighty. Bye-bye. That's uh, the mayor of uh, Bonavista, John Norman, about uh, receiving a uh, late Friday afternoon email from uh, Scotiabank indicating that their branch employs some uh, 10 or 12 people, been there for about 100 years or so, closing in 2024. Uh, People will have to then, um, if they want to do face-to-face banking, travel to Clarenville. Uh, Lindsay in uh, New World Island mentioned the same, Twillingate closing as well, and uh, people throughout that region are going to have to get to Lewisport or to Gander, which is a significant drive, especially in the winter months. Any thoughts? I'd like to hear what you have to say. We're up to news time now with Brian Medore. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. And we're back, Linda Swain, in for Patty Daly. We have some lines open. Now is your opportunity to give us a call. Well, we're hearing about these uh, bank closures coming uh, involving Scotiabank in particular. Um, And according to Bloomberg, um, which uh, came out with this article last Wednesday, Scotiabank says it is cutting about 3% of its global workforce, becoming the latest Canadian bank to trim staff amid continued economic uncertainty. The bank said the cuts which work out to around 2,700 staff come as a result of bank digitization and automation, as well as streamlining efforts and shifting consumer preferences. Well, I can tell you there's a lot of people who do prefer to do face-to-face banking. Scotiabank moving to reduce costs as it looks to restore positive operating leverage, as well as work toward a strategic refresh initiated by CEO Scott Thompson after he stepped into the role in February. So we're hearing 
about uh, the branch in Bonavista, the branch in Twillingate closing as of 2024. Someone just emailed and said they're hearing that the uh, branch in Burgio is uh, also closing uh, in August of 2024. So where's the closest bank for people in Burgio? It would be Stephenville, would it not? So, you know, each of these communities now looking at hour, hour and a half commutes to do some face-to-face banking if they want to um, get a mortgage or even cash a check in some cases. So anyway, or make bank deposits for the business community. That's rough. That's hard. How do you do that? Anyway, I'd like to hear what others have to say about it. It's going to have a significant impact on this region. Uh, We're going to go now to Charlie around the air. Good morning, Linda. Hi, Charlie. Just a quick comment before I get to to, to my main topic on, on the banking thing. They're not saying much about uh, profits being reduced. As far as I know, the banks have been making enormous profits over the last few years. I haven't heard of a change in that. I think their business model seems to be every new CEO comes in as to how to do the other in terms of uh, uh, earning money for the bank and for the shareholders, and they look for ways to uh, increase their profits. I, uh, I, uh, I hope people simply uh, uh, go to credit unions and stop dealing with them. And anyway, that's my quick comment on that. Um, I want to talk about the mass thing. You've been following it, I'm sure, yourself. Yes, absolutely. Uh, although, you know, uh, it is it is a difficult story to, to follow because there is so much that's involved there, including the, the history. Well, I find sometimes on issues my own ignorance overwhelms me, so I try to, to keep up somewhat. But if I feel there's two issues that I've, I've kept up on over the years. Uh, it doesn't make me an expert or anything, but one would be climate change and the other one would be the Mideast. When I was young, I used to read in Reader's Digest about the, uh, the battles there, uh, and I was very much pro-Israeli at the time. Uh, Two books I would recommend, highly recommend for if people want to know more about how this started and so on. One is called The Lemon Tree, and the other one is called My Promised Land, written by an Israeli. Those two books, if you don't know about the area and you want some background as well as interesting, fascinating reading, uh, again, I highly recommend. Uh, Richard Gwynn uh, died a couple of years ago. He had a summer home here, and he used to come here every summer, and uh, we, would, we would get together, and he was big into, into this, and uh, I, fe- I feel I learned a lot from him. One comment he made that I thought was revealing, I said, why don't you write some of this in your articles? And he said, uh, uh, I don't want to lose some of my Jewish friends. I won't go into detail, uh, but but you can read between the lines. Just a quick little bit of history. This state was established in 1948, as you know, by by the United Nations. This uh, existence of Israel was never accepted by the Arabs, by the Arab nations and the Palestinians. And some people seem to to, to think everybody agreed to that. So this set the stage for what's happening today. When the state was established in '48, there was a war that the Arabs had attacked uh, soon after, trying to protect the land and uh, not because they didn't agree with uh, this being imposed on them. And in that war, Israel uh, won, and uh, 
during that, you will see this in the lemon tree very clearly, during that war, the land that was given to the Palestinians uh, in that uh, agreement, much of that land was taken in that war. The locals were driven out. They were driven out by the Israeli army, by terror tactics. They were, they were put in buildings and that and warned that they had to leave. And uh, this was a land grab after the, the Israel had, had been established. And the issue became the right to return. And this is what many Palestinians and why they haven't been able to get peace over the years. They've insisted on that right to return to land they were driven from. And uh, this has been the sticking point for all, all the trouble that uh, all the peace treaties they've tried to uh, sign and so on. The, the Israelis have never agreed to, to, to give back that land, or even, as far as I know, to give compensation. Anyway, Tom Friedman was on this morning. Tom knows more about this than uh, most of us will ever know. Uh, he's studied the Middle East for years and years. He's a New York Times writer and uh, reporter. He said uh, right now what he's scared of is uh, in 9-11, the United States, uh, Biden, uh, people admit they overreacted. Uh, and and uh, many t thousands of people were killed, uh, both Iraqis, Afghanis, and uh, United States forces. Uh, trillions were spent. Uh, they basically overreacted uh, because of what happened in 9-11. And you can understand the anger in that. He said, this is where Israel is right now. Biden went over there, I, I believe, uh, and is coming out now to basically say, please, uh, take your time with this and don't don't overreact as we did and make the same mistake, because it could easily, Tom said, draw in Iran to the war, Hezbollah certainly to the north in Lebanon, and uh, other Arab states could could uh, the West Bank as well, other Arab states could be uh, involved. But anyway, uh, this is the big thing now. This is a powder keg, and Israel has got blood in its eye. It wants to. Uh, uh, avenge what's happened. By the way, it's already done that. Uh, Gaza is uh, half destroyed as we speak, and you can imagine the uh, the horror that's to, to people left behind there. By the way, they're even using phosphorus bombs, which are uh, outlawed. It's a war crime. Phosphorus uh, just takes the flesh off, if you want to read that sometime, uh, the effect of dropping a phosphorus bomb. And then the, the, the Palestinians, most of them, uh, of course, are not a mass. Uh, they're in the south. They have no supplies, basically. You've got 34 trucks have gone in, which will uh, be about 4% of what they need, it was estimated. And fuel, they're not allowed to have fuel at all. So if you want to look at avenging it, they've already done that 10 times over. But uh, they won't be satisfied till they try to uh, get a mass removed, which you can understand. And by the way, in saying this, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of a mass. So, uh, and I'm not. But can you remove Hamas? Can you? I mean, yeah. um, without you know killing you know masses of innocent humans. You can't. You can't. They can't get rid of... They can break the structure down, the, the, the governing structure and so on, for, so on for a while. But then they have to occupy that place. And uh, to rebuild there, 
you can imagine what's 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 uh, what, what that's all about. But you can't destroy an idea and so on. Uh, Amass, by the way, didn't start as a terrorist organization. They basically said we don't recognize your existence because you don't really recognize us, and you won't uh, 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 do the right of return. So that's uh, and when the Palestinians voted them in. The Palestinian government at the time were corrupt. Hamas promised them uh, uh, social services and that, and they gave them much of that. They didn't vote for a terrorist organization, as some people are talking about. Uh, but but they became to, uh, a terrorist later because of the broken promises and all the all the other stuff that was going on. All the children they saw being bombed to to pieces, their, their own Palestinian children. But anyway, uh, do you want to say anything? Well, yeah. Can this? I mean, I mean, there are um, groups that have called for a de-escalation and a and a and a ceasefire. I know there was a peace summit that was held in Cairo on the weekend. No real consensus found there, but. Um, can this come to an end in in the near future? It, it just looks like it's it's going to create even further um, divisions years and years down the road. It can come to an end soon because the Israelis don't want to stop until they go in and remove them. Hamas is not going to uh, just simply throw down its arms. Uh, they know what will happen there. So, no, the answer is uh, it won't end soon. And if it does end militarily uh, after four or five months, because you, if you're in there fighting, you're, you're, you're street to street, house to house, and, and they've done this already in Mosul and other places in Iraq. So um, after that's over then, who goes in to rule Gaza? If the Israelis stay there... Uh, uh, that will be opposed vehemently by, by the Arab world, and it'll also be they'll be exposed to attacks continually. So they can't stay there. Uh, the the, the uh, U.S. is saying to the Arab nations, we'll establish a peace force to go in from your countries uh, under the U.N. auspices. And the Arabs are saying, we're not going in unless you go in. You've got to leave this United States. So so they're in a bind, too, you know. So I don't see this ending uh, very quickly, no. No, and uh, exactly. I mean, how do the Western nations align themselves um, or continue to align themselves in the years to come? It's, it's, um, it's a really difficult, difficult situation. Well, what we created, we, we created this by, by, by talking about, they used to say, an empty land for a landless people. Of course, it wasn't empty at all. People lived there, and uh, once that was established as the solution, uh, that's, that's the root of it all. It wasn't a solution at all. It was a, a thing in response to the Holocaust. They needed a Jewish homeland. And uh, the Western powers basically imposed this on the Arabs. And if you impose something, it's like the guy in my promised land, the Israeli writes, this cannot end uh, with, with, with this structure of the Palestinians basically being uh, shunted aside or given very little land. And now the Israelis are, are building more settlements in, in, in the West Bank. That right-wing government in, in, in Israel now, uh, they want to throw out the Palestinians altogether, drive them into Jordan, you know. That's a faction of that government, I should say. Anyway, it's, it's, it's quite something. And again, I'd say the lemon tree and my promised land, if you want to really get into this, uh, see what it's all about. I really appreciate your call this morning, Charlie. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Linda. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. And uh, we're up to a break. When we come back, we're going to speak with Colin. You're on the uh, you're on the air. You are listening to VOCM Open Line. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. We're going now to Colin. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. 
Good morning, Miss Wayne. How are you this morning? Great. How are you? Doing good, thank you. That's good. I'd like to talk about the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary, their um, criminal record screening and vulnerable sector check form that they have online. Okay. Yeah. The um, the vulnerable sector check part is used for um, if you're applying for employment, for example, with vulnerable groups, children, the elderly, or you're volunteering with those groups, or uh, you need one for uh, becoming a foster parent or things like that. Yeah. And uh, there are more detailed background checks on an applicant than a regular criminal record check, which would check just for criminal convictions and criminal findings of guilt. They're quite involved. Uh, on this form that's online here that I'm looking at, the vulnerable sector check, uh, the consent part of this form, which is online, you had to agree to a number of conditions in advance to get a vulnerable sector check uh, done on you by the constabulary if you live in their jurisdiction. Uh, they divide um, the vulnerable sector check into two uh, two groups or two criteria. Two, um, one group is the is people who've been um, subjected to a police investigation by the constabulary. Um, even if no criminal charges were laid against you, you still have to agree to allow them to disclose this to a potential employer or volunteer organization, educational institution or, or whatever. Um, and it's their opinion when they release that um, information to, to these organizations about you, it's their opinion that uh, the, the, that the investigation, even though it didn't result in any criminal charges being laid against you, that it was, um, in their opinion, that the investigation was uh, substantiated and founded, the accusations that were made against you, notwithstanding the fact you weren't charged. And the second criteria... But wouldn't, if you're seeking a, um, a vulnerable sector uh, check for a potential employee who's going to be working with vulnerable people, uh, whether they be seniors or children or whatever the case may be, wouldn't you right. want to know uh, about any red flags? Mm, you weren't charged. No, but if, if uh, complaints had been made against you, wouldn't you need to know that? If you weren't charged, why would why would that have to be disclosed? You have to you have to agree to allow to that to be disclosed against you in advance. Anybody can make a complaint against you. The police are obligated to do an investigation, and I don't take any issue with the police doing an investigation. If they determine that there's reasonable and probable grounds to believe an offense has been committed, they will lay a charge, and then the courts will deal with that charge, right? But if they do an investigation and they come to the conclusion that they don't have reasonable grounds to believe an offense has taken place and therefore they won't lay a criminal charge, that that investigation, notwithstanding the fact that they didn't have grounds to lay a charge, you still have to disclose that to a potential employer. You have no control over the police, whether, whether the police are going to be investigating you. 
Right. So how would you uh, prefer to see that done? Well, what I'd like to see done is what the province of Ontario done when they had this problem several years ago. They brought in legislation in, in uh, at Queen's Park, and they prohibit that information from being disclosed on a vulnerable sector check in that province. And and there's a whole list of criteria for other um, non-criminal uh, information, uh, non-conviction uh, records, and, and and the criteria and the regulations that back it up is, is quite expansive, quite detailed. You'd have to look at it. It's also online. But uh, you cannot release uh, police investigations in that province. If, if there were no charges laid, that's it. Do you know if it's ever been questioned in this province? I don't know. But it seems to me the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary are just doing whatever the hell they want. You know, and the second criteria with, with respect to the consent part of this form is, and which I find particularly galling, is that uh, the first uh, section is referred to as um, negative contact with police, which I just mentioned, you know, the, the, the investigation. You've had negative contact with the police, notwithstanding the fact you weren't charged with anything. The second criteria is, and this is their um, terminology here, not mine, is that you had adverse information in the police file with them, whether you have been convicted or acquitted of an offense, either one. So if you were charged with an offense, you pleaded not guilty, which is your right, you're presumed innocent. You go to court, you have your day in court, a judge finds you not guilty, and you're acquitted. That information is viewed by the provincial police force here as having adverse information. And that will also be disclosed to a potential employer that you've been acquitted. I understand being found guilty and convicted, but you've been acquitted. The Supreme Court of Canada has said that an acquittal in the criminal trial is a finding of innocence. So how does that compare, let's say, to the RCMP? Because they do these types of things as well, do they not? Uh, they do, and I, I have no idea about them, what, what their criteria are. It may be very similar to what the constabulary do. I don't know. But the constabulary, the vast majority of people in this province live in their jurisdiction, and the constabulary jurisdiction is expanding you know, out, out to Pasadena and the West Coast now. So they're taking in more patrol jurisdictions So this uh, vulnerable sector check criteria will, will encompass even more people in the province now. I find that absolutely astounding that somebody who's acquitted of a criminal charge, now I don't care what it is, you've been acquitted by a court of law, the Crown either has appealed and lost the appeal or has sought not to appeal, the, the acquittal stands, the Supreme Court of Canada has said that that is a finding of innocence. And it also says any issue that was determined in favor of the accused at that trial, whether it was um, a positive finding by the court, or even if it was based on a reasonable doubt, that becomes a finding in favor of the accused. That is the law in this country, as set out by the top court in this country. The constabulary are not following that law. They, they classify people who have been acquitted of crimes as having uh, adverse information in a police file. So I just want to make sure I'm very clear here now. According to them, if you have someone like Doug Snellgrove, who's been a convicted sex offender now, he would have adverse information in the police file. 
because he's a convicted sex offender. But if you have somebody who, say, wrongly convicted of murdering their mother, they're both in the same category. Colin, dealing with here. Yeah, I, I appreciate your call this morning. We'll see what others have to say. Thank you for listening. All righty. Bye-bye. Uh, interesting to see uh, if uh, John Hogan would weigh in on that. We'll see if we can't reach him in the House of Assembly today. Well, we're up to news break. Uh, not news break. We're up to a break. Uh, you're listening to VOCM Open Line. When we come back, uh, we're going to speak with Eugene. We hope to speak with you. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. And we are back. We're going to go now to Eugene. You're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Linda. Thank you to David and your producer and you and VOCM for taking my call. Uh, Linda, I called in about the concern of, sh- of closing down the Scotia Banks in rural Newfoundland, and uh, the reason why, of course, uh, uh, I'm from Fogo Island, and our bank shut down some 15 months ago. Uh, you know, on an island where you have to travel to Gander or Lewisport to get to a bank, which would cost you about an hundred dollars, your ferry and your fuel and probably a meal or whatever. So uh, the council, uh, they tried to work out a deal with Scotiabank and uh, to keep it open, and even with a smaller staff and uh, shorter hours, less hours per week, but uh, no prevail. Not, not, nothing didn't happen. So what they did is they told the bank that they could take the, the business they had there for a dollar, sign over a deal for a dollar. Uh, beautiful bank, and if you've ever been to Fogo and seen the bank there, a beautiful bank, accommodations upstairs, the list goes on. Uh, so they signed, so the towns went for it, uh, took it for a dollar, but the deal was that no other bank could come and set up there. No other bank. Ever? Now, they, or over a period of time? No, Never but the credit union could. So they've been negotiating with credit unions, I understand. I'm not speaking on behalf of the town, but I'm speaking on behalf of a resident from Fogo Island. Uh, They've been trying to get a credit union to come there ever since, which is some 15 months later, and they're still out there without a bank. I mean, again, I know, actually, I just came to Scotia Bank. Uh, and, uh, yeah, they're still out there without a bank. And, uh, you know, like, you know, businesses trying to get floats and deposits and the list goes on, or seniors trying to get some banking done. They didn't They didn't consider that at all. They, even though we were rural on an island, they didn't consider that. They just shut her down and left it with a deal that no other bank, save CIBC, wanted to come there today and during a lot of rural Newfoundland. They can't go there. So how do how are the businesses uh, uh, dealing with that then? I mean, you do have to make your uh, deposits. It's cruel. It's unbelievable, Linda, because I know I'm, I got friends that are business people out there, you know, trying to make a deposit, trying to do your banking. I mean, they got to leave and come to Gander and spoil a day, take a day from their work, and and like I said, um, at least nine hundred dollars later to do some banking. And Scotia Bank never took that in consideration at all. They just shut her down. Bang, gone. Unbelievable. 
So and uh, it, it surprises yeah. me, though, that a, a, a credit union hasn't been established there yet with, the, with FOGO's long history of cooperatives and the like. Yes, I know. Uh, you know, we got a lot happening out for a while, and we got the the, the the end there, you know, that's a big producer and, you know, employs a lot of people, and we got the co-op there with four plants operating and, and employing a lot of people and millions of dollars later. Yeah, the economy of Fogoang is doing really well, but the bank shut down, so no one can understand that. Now, I, I remember one time a friend of mine was doing some paving out there, and he said, that uh, he, he said from now on, I'm going to call Fogo Island Treasure Island. <laughs> so there's lots of money on Fogo Island. Just that uh, the bank decided to shut down and, and didn't take the the, the causes in consideration, you know, like the time that brought brought forward to them, didn't take it in consideration, just shut it down, and and the deal that no other bank could come there, that shouldn't have been signed anyway, but it went through. Is there a banking machine there at the very least? Yeah, ATM machines. That's it, and you pay what I think I guess three fifty four bucks to make a withdrawal. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, not, not not good enough, Linda. No. Yeah. Um, and so this has been the case in Fogo. My goodness, for how long now? Since last August, August before last, I should say, yeah, 15 months now, whatever. Yeah. Wow, wow. Yeah. And so um, business is actually taking a full day out of their, you know, out of a certain staff member's day to make these deposits. That's that's also, a, you know, a security risk, I would imagine. It's it's unbelievable, and uh, and you know to to have had the deal signed with the town that no other bank could come there, uh, that 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 shouldn't have never went through, as far as I'm concerned, as as a citizen there. So. So what's happening anyway, with that building now? That building's just there, empty. Vacant. Yeah, the building's just there, just there, vacant, and and uh, you know it's it's unbelievable. I tell you, I deal with the credit union also uh, because I'm I'm a member of the credit union, and it's too bad they don't go there because they're a wonderful bank. You're very important to the credit union because you're one of their members, you know, right? And and no bites from the credit union as of yet. Not that I have heard. I haven't been talking to anyone from the town lately, but not that I have heard. They've been, they've been saying, uh, yeah, you know, they're, they're they're working on it. Uh, it's going to happen soon, and they've been saying that for months now, and some 15 months later, and they're still out there. So I don't know what's going to happen. No. Interesting, uh, Eugene. Uh, I appreciate this. These are the things that affect people in very profound ways. Uh, really appreciate your call. Yes, and when I hear people from Bonavista, the mayor from Bonavista, and people calling, I understand where they're coming from. Yeah, it's not good enough. And thank you for taking my call. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to go now to Annette. You're on the air. Hi, Annette. Hi, Linda. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm fine. I'm calling you from the cancer clinic. I'm getting chemo here. Oh, I see. Um, I'm calling about the blood uh, cancer patients and the move that was made way too soon. What's that? Um, the cancer, the blood cancer patients have been always seen in the ambulatory treatment unit. So the powers that be, in all their wisdom, decided to move all of the blood cancer patients and house them in one uh, area at the Bless Murphy Clinic. Now, I don't have a problem with that, I, and I get that. However, when they moved us all over, they de- they decided, oh, now we don't have enough space for the resource people. 
so in order for me to see my doctor, I have to register at the cancer clinic. I have to walk all the way over to the health sciences to see my doctor. And, you know, Linda, I'm one of the fortunate ones that I can walk, but the, a lot of them can't. I can't imagine having walked through the health sciences. Plus, it's a danger because I have 0.6 of an immune system. So I'm, I'm, you know, going through the through the health sciences, in contact with all these people with communicable diseases, uh, COVID, shingles, you name it. And because I've had two stem cell transplants, and I'm still taking chemo. I can't get re-immunized for chicken pox, measles, mumps, or rubella, nothing. So it's like walking the gauntlet for you. It is. And if what they, what should have been done was move us all over when all of us could go. Because right now, and I mean, Linda, when you get a cancer diagnosis, there's a big emotional aspect to it. And right now, my anxiety is to the roof. I I feel like I've been put in a boat and set adrift. Have you, you raised know, they, this with um, NL I, Health Services or, or the health I sciences? I have called everybody I can think of. And it's... It's too bad because the amateur treatment unit was like a family to us. Like, I've been going there for 13 years. And there's no room now for our doctors and nurse practitioner, um, you know, all the resource people that we avail of. They're all left back at the ATP unit because there's not room enough for them over in this new wing that they built. So t- tell us, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, how it worked before. What, what was the ambulor- ambulatory treatment the w- unit? Oh, it was awesome. The way it worked before was you'd uh, go in and get your chemo. As you were getting your chemo, the girls at the front desk would have your appointment ready for next month and pass it to you. So you could coordinate your blood work, your doctor visit, and your chemo month in advance. Right. Now, take, take that level of stress, added stress, yes. I suppose, off you. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But I, I, I really think that when they're making such a move, they should have the nurses involved and some and a spokesperson for the patient, because. I don't think the patients were took into consideration during this move. And there was no consultation with you at all? Why was the move made? It was, and I, I understand why it was made. It was made because they wanted to house all of the cancer patients all under the one roof. However, they put the cart before the horse and moved us all without our resources. Now, how much, how much consideration was put into that for the patient? None, if what you're saying is, is correct. Um, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it's um, and the 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 ATP uh, patients, including myself, are very upset. Um, you know, like I saw a lady when I was there last week. There was no wheelchair left in the lobby. She could barely breathe, let alone walk. She had to register at the Bless Murphy Clinic. No, sorry, I stand to be corrected. She went over to the ATP unit. They had to tell her that she had to go back to the cancer clinic to register and then walk back again to the ATP clinic to see her doctor. Yeah, that's a lot of uh, fooling around, isn't it? That's a lot fooling around for a person. I mean, that's a lot fooling around for a health, you know, a healthy person. But we're talking about cancer patients that don't sometimes don't have the strength to walk to the bathroom. And not to mention, like you say now, uh, vulnerable yeah. because of the treatments you're undergoing um, and having to walk through all of that. Even if you're wearing a mask, you don't feel safe. Oh, no, no, absolutely. I do not feel safe. Do not feel safe. And, you know, the nurses and the frontline staff, they're absolutely wonderful. The doctors are great. But, you know, the powers that be, again, I'll say in outer wisdom, did this without any consultation from the patients. You know, they never listen. They make all these changes. Eastern Health is famous for it because not only am I a patient there, I used to be a nurse there. And they make all these changes without listening. It's all about the budgetary part of it. And we're hearing a lot of those types of stories today, aren't we? Yes. And it's terrible. It's terrible for for the patients. It's terrible for the nurses. And, I mean, we all work together. We're like a family, you know. And when you have that rug pulled out from under you, you, you know, your anxiety is back. Annette, I'm, I'm so pleased that you uh, brought this up and uh, brought it to the public's attention. Um, let us know if any uh, changes are made or if you get any response. I certainly will, Linda. I appreciate you taking my call. All right, and you take care. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Well, uh, what do you think about what Annette had to say? Um, putting the cart before the horse, as she said. Just imagine now uh, people who are undergoing these types of um, uh, procedures um, and dealing with all the stress that comes with that, having to uproot and move around and go back and forth and um, you know, feeling miserable and feeling vulnerable because they have no immune system, so to speak. It's, uh, it's quite something, as she said. It appears as though the decision was made without uh, thinking about the patients. If you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Uh, And anything else that's been brought up here today or anything you want to bring up, now is your opportunity to do so. We do have lines open. Here are the numbers to call.
And we're back. And off the top of the show, we heard from Gerard Walsh uh, with uh, Windy Heights Farm in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. And he was mentioning that uh, he's waiting on a part that has to be ordered through Newfoundland Power. Um, and he's been waiting and it's effectively shut down his operation for months now. Um, and uh, he was asking about supply chain issues. Well, this is an issue that's uh, no doubt going to uh, exacerbate already uh, difficult situations when it comes to the supply chain. The federal transport and labor minister both urging, uh, are urging, sorry, both sides to return to bargaining in a dispute that shut down shipping on the St. Lawrence Seaway. That is one of the most significant uh, trading channels in North America. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business says the strike could lead to lost sales and revenue for small business already dealing with inflation and labor shortages. Last year, about 16. $7 billion worth of cargo moved through the system of locks, canals, and channels, and connecting some of the biggest cities in the eastern portion of North America. Well, uh, no doubt uh, that is something that small business is watching very closely. We're going to go now to the caller on line one. Hello, Jenna. Hi. Hi. Yes, I'm calling from the southwest coast about the, uh, the bank here in Burgio. Okay. Uh, we are closing next year, and I think it's very devastating to our community. We only have one bank, and that's it. But it also includes Ramia, Grey River, and Francois. Now, that's four communities are going to be without a bank in, in the new year. Uh, I really think it's devastating for our town. Right now, we don't have much going for us. We lost our cops, was promised they would be back. Uh, no one has showed up. The bank goes. Uh, we're going to be in the same boat. We have one grocery store. Uh, to me, uh, this town is dying and nothing is done. Uh, it is. It's a devastating impact. So what's the closest bank then? Uh, Stephenville or Cornerbrook. Wow. So Fly what's away. that? Uh, hour and a half, two hours? It's about a hour and a half to Stephenville and about two hours and 20 minutes to Cornerbrook, providing the road is good, that we travel. A lot of potholes sometimes, terrible weather. Uh, winter time is dangerous, a lot of build up in snow sometimes. Uh, years ago, it was blocked for days. Uh, the later years, it hasn't been so bad, but in saying that, this year could be terrifying, next year too. Uh, we're getting older. There's a lot of seniors here. We got like 12, probably 1,500. I'm not sure how many people, but that that range, uh, mostly seniors. A uh, lot of people don't have their home vehicles. To travel by bus is going to cost you uh, approximately 75, 80, maybe more. That's senior. If you're not a senior, it's going to cost more than that. Uh, you can't afford to go across there every few days or every week if you want to go to a bank. Uh, you need money. you got to live. Uh, what are you supposed to do? It seems to me that these types of policies affect seniors the, the most profoundly. And we do have a large senior population. I'd love to hear from the seniors advocate. I'm going to try and reach her now, if not during the show, then after the show, to see uh, what Susan Walsh has to say about this. But so, I mean, it's one thing for people in Burgio. It's a whole other thing for people in Francois. There are no other options. Nope, none whatsoever. And just to come from Ramia, 
It's an hour and a half on a ferry. Uh, Gray River is even longer, and Franceway is, I'm, I'm thinking, probably three to four hours. Uh, then they got to come to Burgio, take a bus, or some might have a vehicle parked on the government wharf. Not very many there. Uh, look at the expense and trying to get across. You won't even get back to meet your boat to go back the same day. You have to stay somewhere overnight, too. Right. Uh, you know, oh, my goodness gracious, just to get a bit of banking done. Exactly. So exactly. Um, what, what is um, Wi-Fi like in, in your area? Do you have access, uh, good, reliable access to the Internet? Uh, so-so. Sometimes it's fine. Sometimes it's cutting in and out. And for to go on online banking, uh, a lot of people are not up to date on this stuff. Yes, I do online banking, but I'm very scared when I do do it. I don't trust myself. I'm a senior, too. Uh, like, we're in a bind. I don't know nothing about computers. Uh, my 13-year-old granddaughter knows more about computers than I do. She grew up with it. I didn't. Right. And, I mean, there's certain uh, things that you need to be face-to-face with a person for, especially if you're a business trying to make a uh, deposit. Exactly. And not only that, just say if someone wants to buy a home or if someone wants to buy a vehicle, you go to see if you're going to be accepted or whatever. Uh, you can't do that in one visit. that got to take days. And you can't be going back there every you know, few days or whatever. Uh, you are on a fixed income. It's, it's costly. You know the cost of living for everything those days is not good. And I'm telling you, the bank air really, really needs to stay. So what's going to happen in a, in a community like Burgio or Grey River or Francois um, if that bank shuts down? Are there alternatives? Do you think you could attract a credit union to the area? I'm not sure there. I'm not up to, to date on that stuff, but uh, we really, really need something here. Like you take in Cornerbrook, there's uh, the Bank of Montreal, and there's a Royal Bank, and there's two Scotia Banks, and maybe more. I don't know if T- TD is in there or what. But I mean, we got nothing here, just Scotia Bank. And I mean, they got four and five in there. They got two Scotia Banks in there. Why can't we keep one? Jenna, I really appreciate your call this morning. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. All right. Bye-bye. So uh, what have we got now? Uh, That's uh, Burgio, Lewisport, Deer Lake, uh, Twillingate, Bonavista. That's five on my count. We're hearing now Whitburn. Uh, So basically all of these sort of so-called branch branches, if you don't know what I'm saying, you know, outside of the larger populated areas, it looks like, are being shut down. We want to hear from you and get a, a, a better picture of what this means and and how, um, you know, you're going to have to operate from here on in. Um, do you resent having to be forced to do online banking? Not everybody's comfortable with that. Um, as I said, Internet services, not always uh, perfectly reliable in some more remote areas. What's happening in 
Labrador, for instance. I'd like to hear what others have to say on that. We are up to news time now, just giving uh, Brian Medora a little bit of warning to let him know that we're going in just a tad early. Uh, this is VOCM Open Line. Now is your opportunity to give us a call. We have a few lines open, and we expect to get a, an update very soon on uh, what the provincial government has to say about uh, ride-sharing services in this province and the approach that the provincial government is going to be taking towards that very important um, uh situation and uh, the call for ride sharing in Newfoundland and Labrador when we come up uh, right after this. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. And we are back. Uh, We're going to go now to Todd. You're on the air. Hello, Todd. Good morning, Linda. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, top shelf, as Patty would always say. Right on. Uh, I just like to add a list of communities that are losing their banks. And I'm, uh, I don't live in that community anymore, but I'm from there originally. But Botwood is losing theirs in April. And uh, now that's on paper. The hearsay is they're not even leaving a, a bank machine there. Now that's rumor. Okay. Now that being said, Linda. Bowood is a senior town. Uh, you know, it's not full of young people anymore. And that, like a lot of the smaller communities in Newfoundland and Labrador these days. And I got a family out there. My mother is there. She's a senior. She's not going to sit on online banking, I'm sorry to tell you. She has a hard enough job navigating her phone to make a call. Okay. I don't do online banking myself. You know, I live in St. John, so I can avail of these services no problem. I can walk in. Uh, but this is a little bit out of hand, you know. It's all coming down all at once to everybody. You know, we, we have a crisis in the health care. We have a crisis in housing. We can't get to a bank now because there's near one in our community, and we're going to have to drive two hours. And you can't get somebody who's um, senior. or I, Look, I'm not a senior, and I don't want to drive two hours to go to a bank myself, okay? It's an expense, and it's out of pocket and everything else. And well, how do businesses, uh, you know, navigate that? You have to make a deposit every night. Otherwise, yeah, you're keeping cash on, on hand. That's dangerous. Oh, very dangerous. Uh, very dangerous. And, you know, some I don't know how they're going to do this. But I, the other day, I, I, I was into a, a local grocery store here. And I helped a gentleman out. He was a senior, a lot senior than me. And uh, his arms were full with groceries. Now, he only went in for a few things, like we all do. And, you know, there wasn't even a bag for him to avail of, you know, to be given to that man. A nickel bag. You know, we don't care. The society doesn't care about seniors and human beings anymore. It's all about bottom line. It's always been like that. But, you know, it's just to the extreme now, too much. What do we do about it? I don't know. We put leaders in place that are good people. We don't have good leaders right now that will support us and stand up for human beings here in this province. Well, we need our elected officials to speak out. That's for certain. Um, Todd, I had someone message me during the newscast say, calling this an attack on rural Newfoundland and Labrador. Do you think that's hyperbole or is that a, a fair assessment? I think it's a very fair assessment. We have leaders here in government that doesn't even know what outside the overpass is. 
All we see is them around the Avalon and around where the big populations are. We don't see them up in, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, Bat's Arm or, or up in St. Anthony or up on the coast of Labrador in Fort O or something like that, standing up for people. They stay here. They got a nice cushy job, and we put them in there. Let's put people in that are going to stand for us. We have a government in there right now, the Liberal government. They have, in the last week, okay, they have turned all the Native organizations that is in this province of Newfoundland and Labrador against them, okay? They've split that. They have about 30 or 40 people living on the lawn in Confederation Building. There's 100,000 people in this island doesn't have a doctor. Now, the list goes on, Linda, and it goes really, really long. It's all levels of government. None of them are standing. They get in, it's a walk in the park for them. They got a big dollar coming in, and their faces out in public, whatever. We got, we got elected officials lying in the house. The people's house here, our government, and they're lying, and they're not charged. They're, if I lied in a court of law, okay, I would be charged. And I would be held and charged for contempt or purgatory, whatever, okay? I would purge myself, and there would be consequences. These fools up on that hill the other day lied to the people in Newfoundland and Labrador, telling us we're getting out of this housing crisis, we're working on it, we got 750 homes, and they built 11. And, you know, they're backpedaling up there. But anyway, we are in one bad state, and we need some good leaders in this province. We we had to stop this. My dad voted liberal 50,000 years ago. I had to do it. Give it up. Vote for the people. Vote for the person that's in your area. Who cares what, what uh, color he's carrying? If he's going to stand up, or she, I should say, if they're going to stand up for you, and they're going to put their chest out and their chin out for you, and they're not going to be afraid and, and, and just stand up for the people and not be a little party uh, patsy and toted party lines and like, like our premier here, I, I, all he does is get his picture taken, for God's sake. That's all. Anyway, it's very frustrating. Todd, what do you really think? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you were right on a roll there. Right on a roll. Well, listen, maybe you got somebody else fired up. Let's hear what they have to say. Really appreciate your call this morning. Thank you, Linda. You have a good morning, and you're very entertaining this morning. Thank you for that. All right. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, what do you think about what Todd's had to say? Give us a call. We're going to go now to the mayor of Whitburn, Hilda Whalen. Hello, Hilda. Hilda. Good morning. How are you, Linda? How are you? Monday. Happy Monday, indeed. What's no, Linda, I'd like to comment on the banks closing here. We're only here everywhere. It's corporate gluttony, as far as I'm concerned. Uh I had a call on uh, Friday from uh, Scotia Bank, and they told me they were moving the bank out. I wasn't too surprised because I heard a month or so ago they were selling the building. I told them, well, maybe down down on the corner, I've got a nice mile going down there. We'll get another bank in there. You're a loss. But I says, I said, uh, your 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 profits this year, I said, was way way above anything. I said, so why are you closing? I said, it's nothing but corporate gluttony. They're closing the banks all across Canada, she said. We're downsizing. I said, yeah, you're, throwing, you're downsizing, all right, and putting it all into electronics. 
So um, the bank in Whitburn is just the one, or do you have other alternatives oh, there? the only bank we have here, which is why I said I certainly will approach some of the other banks and ask if they would like to set up. Probably, well, they may not buy the building, but well, mostly what they're doing now always about the coin, as grandfather used to say. All about the coin, they're uh, closing their buildings. And so what would be the nearest bank for... What would be the nearest bank for people in your area? Bay Roberts. That's a nice little trek in the winter. It is, too. And I hope they lose every client they have. Serve them right, because these banks are, are doing it doing it to all the people across Canada and it's not right. And not of course I said she said, Well I, I it sounds like you're not happy. I said, Why would I be happy? I said I lose a tax base, I lose a service, whatever as times I you know disappointed in it, but I said, Why would I be happy? I said, You knew when you called me what I was gonna say. So um uh, Hilda uh, what area does the the Whitburn Bank serve? It must serve, you know, beyond Whitburn down into oh, Yeah, that that would serve down the shore, a lot of people down from down the shore, up around Normous Cove, Chapel Arm, all in that area surrounding here. They they uh, they all use that bank. My goodness. So what are they all going to do? The same thing as us, I guess they're they're just cut off and uh, I I I I just can't get through. I know uh, this, these banks are for profit. I know that. But to have such a huge profit and then say we have to cut back 12,000 employees. They said that on on the news the other day. And I said to myself, uh-oh, our bank was for sale. That's gone. So when she called me, I said, well, you're not, I said, uh, surprising me. I said, because I said I knew it was happening. Well, she said, I thought I would inform you. You don't sound happy. I said, why would I be? I said, this is just greed and corporate gluttony. That's all. So in the meantime, I mean, what do Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who are losing, in many cases, their only bank do? Oh, well, you know, they, they're they all online. Do it online. A service costs, you know, a dollar here and a dollar there. Do it all online now. COVID... COVID proved to a lot of uh, corporations that you can work from home, and that's what's going to happen. Some working from home, they'll have uh, uh, bank machines here, there, and everywhere, and taking out the tellers, that's the machine's job now, et cetera, et cetera. It is, like I said, nothing but greed, and I hope they lose every client across the island. Mayor Hilda Whalen, I appreciate your call this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. All righty. Bye-bye. So you can add Whitburn to that list. Uh, Bonavista, Twillingate, Lewisport, Deer Lake, Burgio, Botwood, Whitburn. That's what we've heard from so far now this morning. Uh, I'd like to hear if your community is uh, affected. When we come back after the break, we're going to speak with Wayne. This is VOCM Open Line. And we are back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. We are going now to Wayne. You're on the air. Hello, Wayne. Hello, how are you? Good. Yes, I'm with Tony on that one. It's time for people to stop voting red and everything else just because their grandfather or their father voted it. It's People should be voting for who's going to do good for the people, not the people that are going to lie about things and everything else. 
They should be taking the task. If they're not lying, they should lose their jobs and everything. Do you, enough's enough, right? Do you think there's a, um, a, a provincial election in the offing? I hope so, because I guarantee you I won't be voting Liberal. And I hope everybody else don't, too. Any, any particular issue that um, has fired you up in that way? Well, it's, it seems like every time you turn around, you're lying about something and everything else. Now, I know you probably get that a little bit with most of the politicians out there and that, but, uh, you know, plus the housing crisis and everything else and that, well, they, I know the federal government has money to throw at, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't be given any money to help Palestine and, or Israel or and anything like that, but they got $50 million to throw at that, but they haven't got no... No money to throw at the housing crisis or anything else. Like, come on, do help your own people and everything else first. Yes, I believe in helping everybody, but look after your own first. Like, you got veterans out there on the street and everything else. It's just this country I used to be so proud of. Now I tell you, the liberals with things that have gone on and stuff I've seen over the last ten years, I. I tell you, I wish I was somewhere else. Um, they have, by the way, uh, in, invested, as the governments like to say, uh, put a lot of money into um, uh, a housing accelerator program. There's lots of money available. It's just whether or not you can actually fill out all the paperwork to, to uh, access it. Yeah, well, you know, that's another thing. Like, why make something so hard that is so important? You know what I mean? Well, uh, Wayne, I do appreciate your call. Thank you very much. Okay. All righty. Safe travels. You too. Bye. Bye. Uh, We are going to go to Deitra Walsh, uh, the MNL's Director of Advocacy and Communications. Hello, Deitra. Good morning, Linda. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. It's good to, good to speak to you this morning. Yes, for sure. So we've had a lot of conversations here today. Uh, people uh, starting to learn about uh, these uh, Scotiabank closures that are affecting quite a few rural communities in Newfoundland and Labrador, forcing people, if they want to do face-to-face banking, uh, to travel fairly significant distances to do so. And that affects the business community, that affects municipalities, and that affects uh, ordinary citizens, especially seniors. Uh, what's your response to all of this? Well, um, I guess I'll I'll go a little high level Um, right now. I mean, this is, I guess, breaking news in many ways um, in in the immediate situation. And I'm sure people are very concerned about what's happening in their communities, and and rightly so. Um, In terms of from a municipality's Newfoundland Labrador perspective, um, to date, as of this morning, we have not heard directly from our members on any of these particular closures or concerns that they've had with reference to what's happening right at this moment. What I will say is, you know, this bank closures in rural communities and issues around these kinds of services, I'm going to say pulling out of rural communities and centralizing, is not anything new. And as a sociologist, this is a concern. This is a definite concern for rural communities, for accessibility, um, and, and, and we're facing it, uh, I guess, again, right here, right now. Um, uh, I just, uh, just pulled up some, some news stories from before. Of course, Fogo Island has had to deal with this in the past, and, and it's becoming more widespread. So, like I said, we haven't heard from any of our members specifically this morning on this, but it is a concern, and it is something that has happened not only here, but across the country. 
So what kind of an impact would that have on a community like the say, say for instance, growing communities like uh, Bonavista or, or Twillingate for that matter? Uh, they used to be major service centers in their time. Now, you know, the major service centers have moved to Gander and Clarenville, but those communities remain viable, remain thriving, and in fact are growing, uh, especially uh, through tourism. So, uh, you know, how does it ha- what kind of an impact does it have on those types of communities? Well, I mean, you know, uh, coming from a rural community and having studied rural communities as part of my own research for many years, you know, we can look at banks and other kinds of institutions like that as central to all the functioning of that particular community. Uh, And no doubt, um, and I haven't heard the callers from this morning, but, you know, it is important for people still, even in this age of connectivity, to be able to do their business in person. It remains important. I don't think we can we can argue that fact. And so when you're not able to do that, particularly in a rural area, that is potentially quite a distance from where a, a, a branch would be, you know, centralized, let's just say, um, it certainly it certainly impacts how you even do business or how you do your day to day. And it forces people to, to, to change all of those things. And, and, and a lot of people, and again, for seniors who, who may not have access to transportation, and no doubt these are the kinds of calls you've had, also who have um, not just seniors, but any you know, piece of the marginalized communities who may not have access to the internet. Um, these are very valid and important concerns. When you cannot access a service in person, it is a concern for people and for communities and for businesses, because to be able to do that is really, really important. Absolutely. And it is, uh, does it hamper growth, for instance? I mean, I don't know of anybody who's uh, applied for a, for a, a mortgage, for instance, on their f- smartphone. Maybe they can. I, uh, I wouldn't be comfortable with it. You want to have that face-to-face. You want to talk through your options. You want to uh, develop that level of trust. Uh, so if somebody's thinking about buying a home in rural Newfoundland and suddenly realizing, uh-oh, I have to travel two hours to get this done and I might have to go back tomorrow? Um, You know, there right then the decision is made. Yeah, and I think it's a really good question to to ask if it hampers growth. And I I can't substantiate that that, uh, answer right now with any research um, in front of me. Um, But it's certainly something we need to look at. What's the correlation between those two things? And no doubt there's research on this, and I'd be happy to come back on on the line when I have had a look at those things. Um, But, you know, again, it's about accessibility. It's about speed. It's about efficiency and able to do those things in person. Um, One thing I will say is, you know, we've got our MNL annual um, conference and AGM happening this week. Um, Minister Goody Hutchings, who's the Minister of Rural Economic Development, Minister Responsible for ACOA, will be with us this week. We have a Premier's Forum on Thursday morning where we're going to be talking about rural economic development. I mean, this is a very good question to bring to those tables and to those people and amongst our members. Will this hamper growth? Is this okay? Um, What are the options here? Because, again, if you can't access services in your community that are necessary for the day-to-day functioning, and sometimes you have to do that quickly, um, what what is the answer to that? Um, and you know, for example, going online and whatnot. Okay, well, that's the way the world the world is going. Um, but in some instances, that just doesn't work. 
No, indeed. And if you have a business, uh, you have to make deposits. You have to do mm-hmm. those kinds of things. You've got to do it every day. Uh, so, I mean, what does that? What kind of an impact does that have on uh, doing business in some of these Ab- communities? Absolutely. And again, you know, when these changes happen, uh, for those folks who have access to a personal vehicle or who can access public transit when it's available. We all know public transit is not available really outside of St. John's and Corner Brook. Um, You know, you can make arrangements to potentially go and, and do these things, but it does take additional time in your day. And for a lot of people, that's not even a possibility. People don't have access to personal vehicles. There isn't public transit. Um, taking time out of your day for the couple of hours when you need to do banking in person is actually impossible. So it further excludes people. It further marginalizes them in ways that really isn't fair. And pushes communities that want to move forward back. Potentially, yes. And I think that, you know, that's a very good point of conversation for um, for our discussions with the premier and with the minister this week. You know, how what can we say about how this will impact communities writ large who are, like you say, communities in across our province who are trying to foster economic development, trying to grow, trying to be sustainable? And what's the answer to those questions when critical public um, services. I mean, a bank is, is is a private entity, but it offers a, an important public service in our communities um, in order to just to do everything we need to do to make things happen and to make economic growth happen. Dietrich Walsh, I expect that this particular topic will start to dominate your conversations later on in the week. I really do appreciate your time. Thank you. Absolutely. I fully anticipate it as well, Linda, and thanks so much for the opportunity to speak this morning. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. Uh, Dietra Walsh is the Director of Advocacy and Communications with Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador. Well, we're up to news time with Brian Medor. Anything you've heard now so far this morning and you want to weigh in on it, by all means do give us a call. We have some lines open. Or anything else that's on your mind, give us a call. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. And we are back. Well, the provincial government uh, announced has it has announced some uh, upcoming changes to the legislation that they say will help uh, to um, expand ride-sharing type businesses in Newfoundland and Labrador. Of course, uh, this is one of the few jurisdictions in all of Canada that doesn't currently allow for ride-sharing services. So, uh, some of the uh, proposed changes include eliminating the requirement for a written test and an on-road practical test in order to get a Class 4 driver's license to drive either a taxi or a ride-sharing vehicle, waiving the requirement for a taxi license plate to be on any ride-sharing vehicle, providing clear and concise definitions for a transportation network, a transportation network company, and a ride-sharing service, clarifying the definition of taxi to not include ride-sharing services, introducing a system of licensing transportation network companies, and amending municipal legislation to limit their jurisdiction to taxi services 
services only and not ride sharing. So they say if passed in the House of Assembly, they expect that those changes will uh, require the same safety standards for both taxis and ride sharing providers in the province. So uh, if you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Uh, VOCM's Richard Duggan is at that uh, news conference and we'll have more details for us in the news at noon. We are going to go now to the caller on line one. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi, Linda. I was wondering if you guys could put out a question to uh, the construction company that has a bunch of pylons on Torbay Road. They've been there since July. There's no work going on there. It's very confusing for anybody that doesn't know the area. And just wondering when they're going to be taken out of there. Um, where? On Torbay Road. Corner Torbay Road and to Torbay Road and Newfoundland Drive kind of area. By, um, just back from McDonald's. It's oh, yes, yeah, I, I got you. All that area. So that's still up? It's still up. It's been there since July. There's no construction going there. And it's very dangerous. And sometimes I was thrown out in the road. Oh, I know. I've passed through that area this, uh, several times this summer and uh, really felt, uh, you know, when you're uh, on that inside lane, you know, you feel very vulnerable because you feel like you're going to, you know, knock your, uh, the side of your car off with some of this stuff. And then if you move away from them, you're into the other tr- lane of traffic. It, so is the work completed there or is it still ongoing? There hasn't been any work being done there for at least two months. So is it incomplete and just sitting there or...? It doesn't, doesn't appear to be anything there. Maybe the company that has them there could probably answer the question. And that's a pyramid construction. Yeah, for sure. Uh, maybe we'll see if we can get the company. Sorry, uh, caller, but you're you're um, cutting in and out. You must be on a cell. Um, yeah. Yeah, let's let's try and get a hold of the company and see if uh, what the latest is on that, or even the ward councillor for the area. Yes, that would be excellent. All right, really appreciate your call. Thank you. Have a great day. All righty, you too. Bye bye. Uh, we're going to go now to Lindsay. Hello, Lindsay. Linda. Yes. Uh, I just heard the, the news there that the government is going to do everything to the Highway Traffic Act to entice Uber and the Lyft to. To come to the rock, you know, like they're they're going to waive the the written test, maybe the road test. You won't need a class four license, stuff like that. Yeah, that's some of the um, changes to the legislation that they're talking about. Okay, the only thing is, like I've been taxing forty years. Like a lot of my friends don't know my name anyway. I'm just curious, darling. What are they going to do about the insurance? For sure. Will the right. insurance make a difference? Oh, the insurance is going to make a difference. Like the average price of insurance now, you're looking at between nine and ten thousand, maybe eleven thousand. That's just for one car. You probably get them if you had fleet insurance, like like, like what's on the road now. But in order for me to go back behind the wheel now on my own taxi, I'm looking at about ten thousand dollars. That's unbelievable. Right, and then yeah. you get the cost of the car and your equipment and everything else. Okay. And that's all through facilities management, is it? That's all through facility. Yeah. Like we said years ago when they bought in this facility, they said, they said no, they can't refuse your insurance. The question is, can you afford to pay for the insurance? All right. 
So will uh, the question is, will ride-sharing services require that same type of insurance, uh, or will you be able to, you know, I'm not quite sure how that works. Well, that's just it. you got, say, 300 taxi drivers on the road, or, well, just, just take the major stand, the city-wide Newfound and Muggins. They're all owned by, by Peter Gulliver, right? Now, you imagine his insurance bill? Yeah. Every taxi's got to have a minimum of a million-dollar policy hazard on it. And where he's got fleet insurance, I wouldn't even hazard a guess to what he's paying for insurance. I wouldn't even know. Wouldn't so, even be able to do it. so if these ride-sharing services don't require the same uh, level of insurance, uh, then that automatically puts the taxi industry at an unfair disadvantage. Or disadvantage, that's an understatement. I mean, I can get aboard my vehicle and say, I'm an Uber, come drive with me. And if I don't tell my regular insurance company, who's to say anything? But from what I read about Uber, you are not covered by their by their insurance, or if they have insurance. If I go to pick you up, I'm not covered. If I drop you off and I get into an accident, I'm not covered by insurance. I don't know how it works out. It's a, it's a total fool bar there at times. Interesting. Lindsay, that's a, that's a great question. Hopefully we'll get some answers to that as well. Oh, I would love to know. Because you take some guy 30 years old, never driven a taxi, doesn't even have to have a road test or a Class 4 license. Right? It is mind-boggling what Fury is doing. Right? Never was his big number one fan, but this is, this is ridiculous. Right? Interesting. Lindsay, I appreciate your call. Thank you. All right, Darren. Thank you. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Lindsay raising some very interesting points there. Uh, Regina is on the line. Hi, Regina. I understand you found something. Uh, yes. Um, while I was walking yesterday in the top of the pond area, I picked up a hearing aid. And um, I just want to let um, people know um, they can call into your station and get my number of uh you know, whoever lost it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, no doubt they're looking around for it as we speak. <laughs> Probably. And I know I know the situation because I know people who wear hearing aids and, uh, you know, they can pop out. <laughs> and, you know, if you're putting on a hat or even if you're, you know, when the masks were on the go and everybody's wearing the, the face mask, I, I know people with hearing aids that had a devil of a time, you know, getting those masks on and off and trying not to lose the hearing aid in the process. Yes, exactly. All right. So you found it in the Topsail Pond area. I understand that Dave has your number if uh, someone's looking for it. Yes, he does. All right, super. Thanks, Regina. Hopefully we'll get those uh, that hearing aid and its uh, person uh, reunited. Okay, thank you very much. All righty. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, oops, I cut myself off instead of her. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, so if uh, you're missing, if you were in the Topsail Pond area going for a little stroll, discover your hearing aid is missing, uh, Regina just may have it. Dave has her number if you want to give our uh, main switchboard here a call. Uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. And we are back. We're going to go now to the president of Cup W in St. John's, Craig Dyer. Hello. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. What's on your mind? Uh, very interesting show this morning, and uh, I, I allude that my phone is like your switchboard when we're talking about uh, bank closures. And as you may or may not be aware, 
uh, Canadian Union postal workers have been talking about postal banking for over a decade, and we're making little tiny baby steps, but this is an opportunity uh, for these communities to uh, push to have postal banking put in their communities. Uh, I heard your list that you rattled off, and there are a lot of those, if not all, of those communities have a post office in it. So, so what you know, is postal is, banking? Explain this concept to us. Uh, postal banking has been on the go for decades. It showed huge success uh, all around the world, and it's basically a, a banking service. Um, um, we have had some movement on postal banking. We've negotiated some things, but not fast enough because, of course, uh, we'll be upsetting the big banks and taking away from their profits. But if banks don't want to, or if banks want to leave rural communities, one thing that is a constant in most rural communities is a post office or in close proximity. Right now in Newfoundland and Labrador, there's almost 700 banks, or 700, sorry, 700 post offices throughout. They're big, they're small, but they are hubs, and they're probably the only federal identity uh, in a lot of these communities. And this is a great opportunity. Uh, for people in these communities to contact their MP and say, hey, why don't we look at postal banking in our community? So what kind of services can you get through a postal banking operation? Right now, uh, like I said, we're taking baby steps, but there's we've been pushing for full-fledged banking uh, for a long time. I'm going to say over a decade. Uh, I've been to uh, many presentations. I've given presentations. I've sat in front of a Senate committee talking about it, and it just seems like there's not an appetite uh, for Canada Post or the government to move forward, even though, as I said, we're taking some steps. Uh, it's a great opportunity to put that uh, service back into the community and uh, and uh, provide a service to the residents uh, all around. So do you see that as a, as a viable alternative to people who may be losing their bank? It's an opportunity as we speak, and we will, we're getting ready to negotiate again. Uh, and, of course, that is on our list of demands. One, it's uh, secondary income, and two, it's a service. We want to use our post offices throughout the country for many things. Uh, right now, we're also talking about electronic charging stations. Um, about five years ago, there was a big announcement that they put 10 charging stations across the Trans-Canada. But if you go into any community now, you'll see a post office. So if a visitor or a tourist wants to go down to um, Trapassi or something like that, why wouldn't you have an uh, electronic tra- uh, charging station at the post office so people can go down that far? There's lots of uh, things that these post offices can do, but it seems like uh, right now at the moment uh, these banks are pulling out uh, with no notice or little notice and, of course, pushing everybody to uh, the virtual world. But there's a lot of people out there that enjoy going to a teller and they enjoy going to the post office. So now is the opportunity for them to uh, speak up and talk to their local MPs and see if we can expedite this a little bit. So um, in essence, the postal banking would be run by the federal government, Canada Post. How would, work, how would that work? Uh, and that, that's a work in progress. We do offer some financial services and we've been offering them for a long time, money orders, Money grants. Uh, we actually started up. I think there was one project about small business loans. I think it was thirty thousand dollars or less. Uh, it was a huge success, but there was some tangled. But the banking service has been in place for as long as I know, and for hundreds and hundreds of years. As we heard that there was one bank. I think it was Carboneer. I stand to be corrected. That was there for a hundred years. That post office has been there too. So it's all about uh, doing the right thing and about being creative. I. 
I would love to be able to say that this is what they can offer, but I'm not at that pay grade. But it has been a discussion. So why wouldn't we uh, put a little push on that now to put that service back into the community? Like I heard you say, some people would have to travel for over two hours to get their banking done. That's not fair, right? You know, especially when you have a post office a mile down the road. Or if you're someone who uh, doesn't have access to transportation and has to rely on others or whatever the case may be. And for all those good reasons. You know, this is, uh, I was listening intensively this morning, and like I said, my phone, text messages, calls, uh, and it's like, yeah, this is a great opportunity to start that dialogue, especially where CUPW is starting negotiations uh, in the new year at the end of January. And that is a topic that we want to discuss. And, you know, you have a post office in your community. Why can't we make it better for those people in that community? Craig Dyer, president of the Canadian Union of Postal Workers in St. John's. Uh, appreciate your call this morning. Thank you. And thank you for raising the issue. All righty. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, your thoughts on what he's had to say? Give us a call. We're going to go now to Daryl. You're on the air. Hi, Daryl. Well, hi, uh, Linda. You got a, got a good program going there this morning. Uh, there's lots of things to discuss, no doubt about it. Uh, for sure. Uh, I'd like to add to the banking system. Uh, I just heard your last caller there, but I, I, I'll throw out another option. Why don't, why don't they get the Newfoundland Labrador Credit Union come in and fill the void? Uh, I'd like those empty buildings. Uh, won't they approach Newfoundland Labrador Credit Union? Just an option. No, indeed, and uh, that's been raised. A couple of uh, callers have raised that, uh, that it, and yeah. in some municipalities, they, that's already been done, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's probably another option. I mean, the buildings are there. It's just uh, move into it and, uh, you know, take the next step because it's unfortunate what's happening and in general banking. Uh, there's, there's a general crisis in general with everything, and uh, this is putting insult to injury, and these small communities are trying to thrive, and uh, and then you're, you know, you're removing all these uh, services, and, and the banks are making record profits. So, uh, you know, so it's, uh, something's got to be done and uh, people got to start speaking out, especially our MPs. Uh, uh, they're all silent and it's time on provincial and federal levels to start talking about things that got to be discussed. But uh, that'll be a topic for another day. But, yeah, Newfoundland Labrador Credit Union, they got a good name, good reputation. So that's another option as well. But uh, what I want to talk about today is, uh, you know, there's talks there might be uh, – an election call sometime in the near future. Uh, maybe you correct me on this one, but I thought you can't call elections now. They're set for four-year terms now. Wasn't that legislation passed about a decade ago? Oh, that was passed, I think, under Brian Tobin. Uh, Brian Medor might... Uh, 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 no, no, i tell you who it was, Danny Williams. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, yes, yeah, yes, so, but I don't think it's ever really been adhered to. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think the past two has been four-year terms. Because uh, uh, last, uh, well, last time our election we went to the polls was February 13, 2021. So we're just past the two-year mark. But I think the two previous ones, uh, when you research it, they were four years. But uh, so when I heard this pre-election thing, it might be an election call. I mean, we're only two years into it, so. Why are we calling? Why would we call it when it's a four-year term set? And so, in actual essence, we're not going to go. We're not supposed to go to the polls until 2025. And so, and this is why I get my feedback. Uh, I know the cats and dogs, and and people are saying we don't have to take to go to the polls. Focus on important things like what's happening today. 
I mean, you go through the polls now in election, I think what there is a figure of, what, $8 million? Man, that, that money could be put in other places like homeless or whatever the case may be. So if you call an election now or in the near future, before the four-year term, you're – you're, de- you're, you're depriving yourself from focusing on the issues because it's all going to be focused on the election, not the, the issues that got to be dealt with in general. So uh, my feedback when I hear other people, they got no appetite to go to election until the four-year term. And so people are saying, you know, why now? Focus on things that needs to be dealt with, as you know. I heard someone say uh, the other day, they said if an election were to be called, that would make their uh, decision very very easy, um, and they uh, felt like they were in a punishing mood if that were to happen. Yeah, and you know, and and that's the exact same feedback I'm hearing, and not just one person, but everybody is saying, if they call one now, we'll we'll, we'll cast our vote, but it won't be uh, it won't be what the, the, what people think is going to how we're going to vote because it'd be like what you just said, the same thing. So people. They're, if the government's listening now, there, there's no appetite for an election because focus on what needs to be dealt with today as you're hearing on your show here this morning, for an example. You know, we're in a crisis in general. So, uh, so you know, this, because like you said, an election's going to take away from the issues that need to be uh, dealt with. And, uh, and it's, it just don't make sense. And it was a four-year set term. I know I remember that was passed in legislation. Well, how can you call election before if it's set for a four-year term? Last two were four years, so we're only two years into it. So we shouldn't have to go to the polls until five, what, spring of 2025, wherever the case may be. Wait to then, and then everybody work together, all parties, either the PC, liberals, NDP, get together, try to work as a team and deal with the severe crisis that we're facing as of today. And forget about this election thing for now. Go to the polls when we're due in another two years. Daryl, I appreciate your call. Thank you. Okay, thank you for your time, Linda, and keep up the great work, and all the best to you and your staff at VOCM and your listening audience. Same to you, Daryl. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Daryl there in uh, Gander. Well, um, we had this uh, email sent to us by Dave. He says, why is it so ridiculous that we permit ride sharing? We are the only province to not have access to the service, and now we have legislation to guide it. Destination St. John's Hospitality, Newfoundland and Labrador, St. John's Board of Trade, and municipalities happy with this or can opt out if they wish. What is bad about that? Please challenge people with facts to enable others to form an opinion based on evidence. And I don't think there's any suggestion that uh, anybody was particularly against it. Uh, we just had a, a, a man who um, worked in the taxi industry wondering about how it's going to be insured. Uh, so that remains uh, a question that has not yet been answered unless Richard Duggan has uh, received more information on that uh, heading into our news at uh, 12 o'clock. But certainly it's questions that need to be raised over the next little while. And I think by and large, people embrace the idea of of ride-sharing services uh, being allowed here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, at least that's all the conversation that I've heard. I don't think I've heard any negative uh, questions about that. So uh, a que- question and debate for another day. We're out of time now. Thanks for listening, everyone. We had a great show today. Uh, do hope you're able to join us tomorrow. Not sure on uh, Patty's uh, status, so uh, stay tuned for all of that. And uh, I'll be back on News Talk this afternoon at 4 o'clock. 
o'clock. Do join me then. Uh, News at Noon is up now with Brian Medore.